in Matthew 27. And we've been going at this last part of is what we call the Passion Week. And instead of just taking it short, one sermon right before you know Easter, we've kind of expanded it out because you know me, I I, I keep everything so short and sync, right? Um, so we've expanded it out, and uh, and we're in the middle of the Passion Week. And in fact, we're in Matthew 27. It says. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to decision to put Jesus to death. So you might remember last week we talked about he was in the garden and they came to arrest him and, and Peter whipping out a sword and cutting off the guy's ear and, and, you know, way to attack the servant, Peter, not the other army men that have, you know, swords to attack back, you know, that type of thing. But, and, and how Jesus was taken and how Peter was following Christ and the denial of, of Peter, and we talked about all that. So this is the next morning, all the chief priests and elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. So the trial was over at nighttime, which is against their Jewish law. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned to 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is it to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. Sorry, dude, you've already done it. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then they went away and then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this money to the treasury since it is blood money. It's ironic that here they, they're even admitting that it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy a potter's field as a burial place for, the, uh, for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what, has spoken, what was spoken by Jeremiah and the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used it to buy a potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Judas is a very interesting person in this whole story, uh, a very interesting figure. We don't know why he betrayed Jesus at all. We don't know how he could betray Jesus. I mean, how could you, after three and a half years of hanging out with this group and hanging out with Jesus, spending time with seeing the miracles, Seeing all the things that, that have happened, the, the healing of the people, and, and the blind man all of a sudden can see, and the lame can walk, and all that. I mean, he was there for it. I mean, Judas was, was there when Jesus walked on water. I'm sorry, you walk in water in front of me, I'm going to be paying attention, and I'm following you, okay? He was there when, when Jesus filled their nets with, fist, uh, with fish, when he cast out the demons, when he healed the sick and he raised people from the dead. He was there. Judas heard Jesus explain scripture in such a way that he had never heard before and no other teacher had, had done it like that. And he could understand it. He was there. And after all of that, he betrayed Jesus. This guy's a puzzle. We can only imagine why. Financial? Well, I mean, 30 pieces of silver, while 30 pieces of silver is nice, it's not like it's, you know, 3,000 pieces of silver. You know what I'm saying? Political? 
Well, he wanted Jesus to, to be the political Messiah, and Jesus had the opportunity, especially in the story. And the other day when he came down the Mount of Olives on, on Palm Sunday, and they're putting the palm branches there, and he's riding in on donkey. And I mean, the people were ready to rally behind Jesus as a political figure, and he didn't take it. Or was it because Jesus received worship? The people were worshiping him, and he didn't say, no, 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 we only worship God. He was basically calling himself God. Maybe that was the reason. We don't know. It seems to us as we read verse 3, he didn't think it would go this direction. He didn't think that Jesus, he thought maybe they were just going to arrest him. Maybe, maybe that would propel Jesus to really do something. But here they're condemning Jesus to death, and he didn't think it would go there. Scripture said when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 uh, silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Somehow the reality of this whole thing finally hit Judas to the point where, I mean, Judas was going down a road he would not return from. He tries to undo this thing. He tries to correct this thing. And there was no correcting it. I want out. Here's your money back. Jesus is innocent. And their response was, so what? We got him. We're, <laughs> we're the, the train's already gone. The ship has already sailed. I mean, sorry. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, it's against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. And this is very interesting since they are the ones who pulled it out of the treasury. I'm going to use God's money for blood money. Oh, we can't use this money because it's blood money. We can't put that back. I mean, yeah, I mean, it makes you kind of shake your head. All the while, they're breaking all these moral laws, and they even admit it. I mean, what hypocrites these guys are. And Jesus confronted them over and over about being hypocrites. Jesus even told them they would do this stuff, focusing on the, the trivial and forgetting the obvious. So they bought this potter's field for, you know, to bury strangers. It's called the field of blood, Matthew says. They took the 30... Uh, silver coins, a price that's set on him, uh, set on him by the people of Israel, and they used it to buy a potter's field as the Lord commanded me. This is actually a quote that Matthew uses from the book of Zechariah that was written 500 years ahead of time. It's amazing that he did all this. He tells us that the negotiated price for Jesus was 30 pieces of silver, not 20, not 40. But 30, not copper, not gold, but 30 pieces of silver exactly 500 years before it happened. Not only that, he said it would be brought back and thrown into the temple. Very unusual, abnormal event. Not only that, he said that it would be used to buy a potter's field. Very specific. Not a barley field, not a, not a wheat field or anything else, but a potter's field. You know what a potter's field is? You know when you make pots, some of them don't turn out right, you throw it out in the field and it breaks on the field. That's a potter's field. It was a trash heap. It was a dump. See, this is what I love about the Old Testament, and I'm an Old Testament. I love the Old Testament because uh, to me, it's all one testament in my mind. You know, we have the Old Testament, and then we have Christ, and we have the New Testament. And that's why we kind of break it up. But really, God's Word is God's Word all the way through. So we separate them, but uh, you get other, uh, I, I think that, well, 
I won't go there. Anyway, I love the Old Testament. It's very exact, especially when it comes to prophecy. Did you know that there are 332 prophecies concerning Christ in the Old Testament? 332, and Jesus fulfilled every one of them. No other man has ever, ever, ever come close. There was a lot of people that came out of, out of Galilee and a lot of people that were born here, born there. I'm the Messiah. They never fulfilled all the prophecies except Jesus Christ. That's amazing. This is the number one proof that he is the Messiah. Other people have come and worked miracles. Either by good, God allowing them to work the miracle, or by bad with Satan and, and being able to do certain things, deceiving people. They've been able to do that, but not one of them were the Messiah. To fulfill 332 prophecies written hundreds and even thousands of years before he was even born, that is the real argument. That is the, when it gets down to it. That's what you hold on to when you get to that point in your life when you say, is there a God out there? I don't feel God's presence right now. I don't even know if God is alive. You look back and you read the Old Testament written thousands of years before Christ was born, and then you see what he fulfilled, and then you say, I know God is real. I mean, I feel him right now, but I know he is real, and I'm going to follow him. Well, back to our story, just so you know, the Jews did not have a right to execute people. The Romans gave uh, uh, their states that they had conquered, you know, a lot of latitude in law and those type of things, depending on how you uh, reacted after they conquered you. If you fought back, they would clamp down on you. If you were great and you just paid your taxes and just followed along with Roman law, then they just kind of basically left you alone. But they did not allow you to kill anyone. That was left up for the Romans to do. So the Sanhedrin knows that Pontius Pilate has to be involved. They have to go to the, to, to the next step. And Pontius Pilate could care less if Jesus broke Jewish laws. Just so you know. So they got to figure out a way to show that he's breaking Roman law, not Jewish law. Now, a side note on Pontius Pilate. For many years, you know, a lot of people, they read the Bible and they go, well, Pontius Pilate, there, there's not even a guy named Pontius Pilate. There's, there's no evidence he was ever, you know, alive. Well, that was up until I think it was the 60s when they uncovered a, a, a big written, you know, where they have scr- uh, things written down, inscribed rocks and stuff that they used to, you know, monuments and stuff. They found his name, Pontius Pilate, in that area on a rock. So we know this man was alive. That's just a side note. For those that say, oh, no, you know, they try to use the Bible against, you know, against us in a sense. But Pontius Pilate could not care less if a Jewish law was broken as long as he wasn't a threat to Rome. So they had to convince him that Jesus was a problem for Rome. Well, he's calling himself a king. He's calling, you know, he's saying, don't pay any taxes to Caesar, which is actually the opposite of what Jesus said. But in verse 11, it says... Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say. Jesus replied, When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. 
It would be hard for us for me to sit there if somebody was accusing me of all sorts of things that I didn't do for me to sit there and shut up and not say anything. You know what I'm saying? And Pilate was sitting there going, wow, you have the chance. I'm, I'm giving you the floor, the open floor. Say something. And Jesus just sat there and didn't say a word. Pontius Pilate did not understand why Jesus didn't offend himself. Well, the other Gospels talk about how he, he got Jesus in private and, and talked to him. And, and the more he questioned him, the more he thought that either Jesus was, or more he thought that maybe Jesus was crazy or deluded. We got a loony guy on our hands here. But he had done nothing wrong. He was an innocent man. So in verse 15, it says, Now, it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked him, Which one of, uh, do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? Pilate, you know, Pilate was sure they didn't want this dangerous criminal called Barabbas. He was sure that, I mean, this guy was notorious. You go read and study about this guy. He was unbelievable. So Pilate's just trying to, thinks he will avoid dealing with Jesus here. Because they'll just want him released. Because he's a very popular teacher. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his, uh, his, uh, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with this innocent man, for I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. And like most men, Pilate does not listen to his wife. He knew that they wanted Jesus dead, and he couldn't figure out why. Verse 20, it says, But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then when Jesus, who is called Christ, Pilate asked? I mean, what a great leader. Take a poll. Who wants to do what? I mean, there's times when you get a small group together and say, okay, let's talk this through. Good, bad, pros, cons, all that kind of stuff. But then when it's time to lead, you lead, right? (laughs) He's not leading here at all. They answered him, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him, crucify him. In other words, don't confuse us with facts here. Just crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. Pilate is a classic example of a person who knows what is right and doesn't do it. I think we've been there, haven't we? We know what's right and we choose not to do what's right. He is afraid to do the right thing. He is afraid of his crowd. He is afraid of his friends. It's especially when, you know, we're in, you know, junior high. And I mean, even Brandon's age. He doesn't like to displease people. You know, and that starts at four years of age. And then junior high, it's the worst. And, and high school and college, so many college people get in trouble because, well, they were just following their friends. You know, one night in college, uh, when I was at University of Houston, I actually lived under the stadium, and people laugh at me when I say that, but there was an old groundskeeper's apartment underneath the stadium, and that's where the trainers were allowed for, to stay for free. So there was like seven of us piled in. We had bunk beds. I mean, it was a little dinky, like 400-square-foot place, and there's seven of us. It was awesome most of the time. But one night after a game, a, a friend of mine, in, 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 his nickname was Spanky, okay? So that tells you a lot right there. 
Well, it was right after the, I mean, we're talking 1990, 91. It was right after the Simpsons had just kind of hit it big, and everybody's like, oh, Simpsons, Simpsons. Well, there's a Burger King on campus, and they had the Simpson banner up there. And after the game, he, he said, hey, we're going to go steal that banner. We're going to go take that banner. Well, he didn't use the word steal, but that's what they were doing. And I'm like, it's late. I don't know. I, you know. I was trying to just avoid the situation. I knew what was right, and I was like, no, I'm not going to. Well, you know what happened? They went down there, and they cut the, the line, and the cops rolled up. The cops had watched them the whole time. Now we think, okay, stupid. They get a little slap on the wrist. No, 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 no. This was state property. As an athletic trainer, the license you get is a state license. He got a felony for it. He, therefore, he could not be an athletic trainer. He'd wasted all his college years and go on the drag. He didn't know what to do at that point. His life was turned upside down because he knew what was right and he did what was wrong. And you think, oh, it's just a silly little vinyl you know, thing that hangs outside the window. No. Right is right and wrong is wrong. And we know that. Pilate knew that. How did this work out for Pilate, washing his hands? You know, he just thought, well, I'll just wash my hands. I have no part of this. Now, do we have any little kids named Pilate? This is Heather, this is Christian, and and this is our newest named Pilate, or Pontius. You know? No. He's looked upon very negatively. His name doesn't continue, so he tries, but he's not innocent. Now, notice that everyone is saying that Jesus is innocent. Judas is saying Jesus is innocent. The Sanhedrin agreed with Judas, but they didn't care. And now Pontius Pilate is saying Jesus is innocent. And all the people answered, verse 25, let his blood be on us and our children. Don't ever say something like that. I wonder if that, I mean, it's bad enough when our sins affect us, but don't bring it down on our children. Don't do that. I want, you know, sometimes I wonder if they really did curse themselves with this one. Now, at the same time, I want to remind you, Jesus went to the cross willfully. It wasn't like he was, I mean, he was drugged to the cross, but it's not like he was saying, no, don't do this. Because remember, he said, Father, if this is your will, then I'm going to go through it. So don't ever just blame, the, oh, it's the Jews. They did it. Da, da, da. You know, there's that kind of old thing that, that's hung around for generations and generations. The Jews aren't the culprit here. Sin is the culprit here. Jesus went willingly to pay for our sins. It's our sin. It's my sin that nailed him to the cross. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and he handed him over to be crucified. Now let's talk about flogging. And, and part of me says, man, I'd love to get the, the movie um, about Christ up there and, and the passion of the Christ and, and show you the scene. To, to I mean, uh, Wow. You understand what this is when you see something like that. But then again, it's so just like disturbing at the same time. So that's why I didn't do it. But flogging was in a very effective way to get a confession. Each blow was harder and harder. And you would get to a point where you would say anything to get them to stop. You know, in America, we, you know, waterboarding or not, you know, I'm not saying good or bad, okay? I'm not going there. So don't hold me to one or the other. 
But that's nothing compared to being whipped and flogged like that. You would say anything to get a confession or to, you know, to, to get out of it. This creates a dilemma for Jesus. The Scriptures say that he would not say anything, that he would remain silent. He would not confess because he has nothing to confess for. So there was no mercy for him. Blows get harder and harder. This is why I'm convinced that Jesus, you know, he gets put, uh, you know, gets put on the cross, and six hours later, he is dead. I mean, usually up on a cross for Romans, I mean, it would take days for you to die. Days. Six hours. And I think a lot of it has to do with that beating that he took. Man. I think he was almost physically dead from the beatings. But it says in verse 27 here, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus to the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They, you know, they, they knew that he called himself the king, so they're doing the whole king thing here, having a little fun. And they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hell to the king of the Jews. They spit on him. They took the staff and struck him on his head again and again and again and again. After that, they mocked him. They took off the robe and put on his own clothes and they led him away to crucify him. Isaiah had predicted 750 years before it would happen. He said, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheek to those who plucked out the beard and did not hide my face from shame and spitting. That's exactly what they do to him. It says, as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. And this is basically a painkiller. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. He didn't want anything to deaden the pain. He'd already dealt with this in the garden. He was going through what the Lord was going to take him through. What the Father wanted him to go through. So that no one would say this was easy on him. No one can say that. Or that his payment wasn't enough. For someone to be able to say, I've committed too many sins for God to cover my sins. Have you ever heard that statement? Known somebody may have said that? I've just done way too much. No. If you know what Jesus went through, no, no, no. He went through it all for your sins. Don't ever say, I've done too much. You find out the sacrifice is just, man, what he went through to pay for our sins. He, he suffered even though you know what happened as tough as it was for him he did that so I'd know for sure that by his stripes I was healed and too often we forget that we study this at Easter, and then we go on, and we say, well, Jesus died on the cross for us, and, and we have a cross, and it's a, it's a great symbol for us. It's a symbol of, of resurrection, which is great. But too often we forget what he went through for our sin, 
And we're like, oh, woe is me, woe is me. I think that's why too often the church as a whole, when I say the church as a whole, I'm talking about the church around the world, comes to church not worshiping Jesus because we forget what he's done for us. Then they crucified him. Verse 35 says, When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him. Above his head, they placed a a written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two robbers were, were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from that cross or the cross if you are the Son of God. Can't you do it? Come on. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. It's kind of interesting. They never really mocked him in front of his face until they had him on the cross. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He is the king of the Jews, or he's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants, for he said, I am the son of God. (coughs) In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him heaped insults on him. If you are the son of God, prove it. Come on. If you are the Son of God, just come, come down from the cross. Bring all the angels. Do whatever you can. Just prove it. Come down here and show us. If you do, then we'll believe it. We'll believe on you if you, do, if you do. You know what? I don't think they would have. They'd seen everything he'd done for three and a half years, and they still didn't believe. They were there at the baptism. They, they witnessed the dove, something like a dove, coming down from heaven, landing on Jesus, blessing Jesus, and the voice thundering from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Wow. They had people there from the Sanhedrin that witnessed that, and they still didn't believe him. If he came down from the cross, I don't think they would have believed him. Some of the people heard the the voice that same voice were now mocking him. They saw him walking on water. They saw him divide a boy's lunch to feed 5,000, which was men, so 20,000 you know, people, 15,000, whatever you want to say there. They saw him calming a storm. When a demon was, was called out and said, we know who you are, you are the Messiah. I I think I'd believe that one. They didn't believe it. So why would they believe them now? He raised someone from the dead and they didn't believe it. This is like us. This is like us in a crisis. If you do this for me, God, then I will believe in you now. If you just do this one thing. See, the unspoken is, if you don't, then I won't believe in you. And that's the hard one. I mean, this is especially hard for those that, you know, that have a loved one. And the younger the loved one is, the harder it is. 
you know, a child, if a child dies on you, you know, or are really, really sick, you're like, God, if you just do this, I will forever believe in you. And the unspoken is, if you don't do this, then I'm done with you. And we see people walk away from the faith because of this. If believing in God requires him doing what you say, I almost have a feeling that he could do exactly what you say and you would find another reason not to believe in him. God doesn't work that way. Do you really want a God who does everything you want him to do? Man, part of us go, yeah. I mean, if you think really quickly. But think about that for a second. You ever wanted something from God, and then God not allow it to happen, God not do it, and then you look back, hindsight is twenty twenty. you look back and you go, whew, I'm glad God didn't do that one for me. Because now I'm down the road and I see where it would have taken me. I don't want a God that doesn't do, I mean, the, that does everything for me. If you're really God, Jesus hangs there on the cross and even asks God to forgive them because they didn't know what they were doing. See, the miracle of the cross is that Jesus stayed up there. That's the miracle. The miracle is that three nails nailed through his arms and his legs held him to a piece of wood. To me, that's the miracle. Verse 45, it says, for the six, um, From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine and vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to see him or save him. Jesus is, is feeling the full effect of abandonment from the Father. Because the Father could not be around sin. Jesus is now full of sin, our sin. So God has turned his back on him. Unlike God will, turn, God will not turn his back on us because of what Jesus did. He went through this so we can understand that Jesus understands us. The feeling of being abandoned by somebody. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a loved one. Maybe it was a divorce and you're sitting there going, and they're just gone. And you're feeling that abandonment. The feeling of being lonely. Jesus has been there. He knows how you feel. And over time, if you allow him, he can change and work that through you. And you will come out on the other side a better Christian. He uses the exact words in Psalms 22 when David predicted exactly what would happen a thousand years before Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? But am I a, a worm and not a man scorned by men and despised by people? All who see me mock me, 
They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried like a pot shard, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me, and they have pierced my heart and my my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. You have to keep reminding yourself, this was written a thousand years before Christ was born. If you ever doubt that God is real, read this and know that He is. One thousand years before it happened. No one else in history fits this. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All will go down to the dust and, uh, and will kneel before me. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, pros- prosperity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to the people yet unborn, for he has done it. This is so specific. How did Jesus predict this so accurately? See, our walk with the Lord does take faith. We have to get to the edge of the cliff and we have to jump. But we don't jump without merit. We don't jump without knowing, without understanding. You know, people are like, well, how can you have that faith? You know, science is it. Well, science only has certain answers and science goes by the law of God, okay? Believing in God takes a certain amount of faith, of just knowing. But we get there with good reason. We get there with knowledge. Because facts are facts. Sometimes we need to put emotion aside and look at the facts and understand what we believe is true. We call that faith. The world calls this being loony. But you know what? It's worth the world calling us that. Keep up the faith. It is reasonable to be a Christian. The Old Testament prophecy proves You are right about Jesus. It's true that we receive Jesus in our hearts, but we also receive him in our minds. Sometimes it's hard for the skeptic to understand Jesus. But this is what Matthew was writing about. He is writing to the skeptical mind, laying out the facts, laying out the prophecies. He was writing to the Jews who would sit there and go, no, 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 I don't do this whole Jesus thing. I stick with Elohim. I stick with God. I stick with G, and I can't pronounce the middle part in D because, you know, we're not allowed to even say his name. That's who I stick with. I don't go with this Jesus guy. That's who Matthew is writing to, the, the person who needs to understand the prophecy. So it's not a huge leap of faith for us to believe. From Genesis 3 all the way through, you know, for all the way through the Bible, for those who see Christ, they may not understand God, God may not answer all their questions, but the reality is it's logical to believe in Jesus. And when Jesus cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit, the scriptures say. They didn't take it. 
They didn't beat it out of him. He gave it up willingly. At the right time, according to prophecy, he waited to the right time. He waited to the afternoon sacrifice that was happening in the temple. The same time they were sacrificing to cover for sins, that's when he gave up his spirit. I have to ask you a question. What is your life mission? Do you know what your life mission is? Are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Are we doing what we're supposed to be doing as followers of Jesus? Because we need to understand what our mission is. What is your mission? Well, I don't know, Pastor. I've been trying to figure that out. Well, that's, that's a valid thing. So ask God and start doing. Jesus did this for me. He was despised for me. He was oppressed for me. He was afflicted for me. He went through sorrow and grief for me. We have You know, we have a God who understands our sins and is still there for us, and that's amazing. Therefore, don't think you can't come to God. Begin a relationship with Him today. If you're sitting there going, man, in one year I would like to be in this place with God, then start that process today. Go deeper in your relationship because the ball is in our court now, not His. It is our response to the Spirit within us that guides us. It is ours to give back, to serve, to show others, to live a righteous life. Not a sinless life, because we can't do that, but a righteous one. A life that reflects what I believe in. That's a hard one, isn't it? How I act directly points to what I believe in. Don't be fooled that coming to church is is it. Be a Christian first in your home. That's hard. Isn't it? That's hard. Start there first. You know, I try to be the same person up here than I am at home. I don't want to do the the two different things. I like to joke around. I like to have fun. But I don't want my son going, well, at church you act like this, but daddy at home. I don't want that. I try to do the same at both. Be a Christian in our home. Be a better example for our kids, a better example for our spouse, our husband, or our wife. It starts with those that we love the most. Therefore, we need to remember what God has done for us and figure out what our, stay, you know, what our response is. We, you know, the, the, the first stage is I, the, I believe in you stage. I believe that you died for my sins. Unfortunately, too many Christians across this world get stuck right there. I believe in you, and I go to church, and I worship you. But it doesn't go anywhere beyond that. We need to go to the next step. Now that I believe in you, what do I do with it? What do I do with it? What do I do? And that is what we call the life mission. We think the life mission is go off to Haiti, go off to Africa, and and serve God. No, 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 no. That is the life mission for some, and it's a very few some. 
And I think it's a good introduction for us to go, hey, should we do a small mission trip to somewhere else that's not like here? I think that's a good step. But that's not what we're all called to. What do I do? That is the life mission. For me personally, my, you know, sometimes you can come up with a life verse you know, in the Bible, and, and mine is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The heart is how we treat each other. The mind is, is my learning about God. The soul is how I worship God. And the strength is what I do with it. That's how I kind of try to position my life. If you want to adopt that one, great. If not, go find another scripture. Or it doesn't even have to be scripture. God, what do you want me to you know, mold my life around? As long as it's biblical, hey, go for it. But you've got to figure it out. Because it's not good enough just to show up on Sunday, sing a few songs, shake some hands, smile, and then leave. It's not good enough for God. Now, I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm just saying, if you want more out of your relationship with God, then put more into it. And the Spirit will, man, you know, for those that have a child or work with children, been around children, man, when, when you finally see them, like, You've been wanting them to do this, and they finally kind of attach onto it, and you're like, you, you take them and run with it, right? Oh, they're finally there, and you just take it and you just go, you know? You're all excited about that. That's what the Holy Spirit does with us. Alan, you, okay, you finally get it. You want to do this? Great, now come on. And he drags me through it. If you want that, then start doing it. It starts with you going beyond the, I'm a Christian, beyond the, I come to church, I worship God, and I leave. Start doing it. Figure out what it is for your life. Well, I've gone over time today, so why don't we pray? Worship team can come up and do half their song. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, as we study the end of your earthly ministry, the Passion Week, all the things that happen. Let's pray that we not just leave it there, not just leave it at the resurrection and say, that's wonderful, I believe, that we go to the next step. We pray that you help us on that, that we not drag kicking and screaming down the beach, but that we go willingly. And we pray that when we take that step, that we feel your spirit tugging us, tugging us in that direction, whatever that direction may be. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may he bless you immensely when you turn toward him and walk toward him. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.